Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 7. As we continue on in Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 12. These are the words of Jesus. Judge not. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why do you behold the mote or the speck that is in your brother's eye don't consider the beam that is in your own eye? Or how will you say to your brother, let me pull out the speck that is in your eye and you don't behold the beam that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First cast out the beam out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to cast out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Give not that which is holy, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, turn again and rend you. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened to you. For everyone that asks receives. And he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be open. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? Then being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, all things, whatever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, we thank you for this new year, and we thank you for your words that are everlasting, that are as relevant today as when they were first spoken. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear your everlasting voice, that you would give us understanding as we look at this passage. And Lord, that you would, that you would address in us, in our own lives, this issue, these issues that we looked at. That you would give us the ability to reflect this morning and to allow your words to search us. And Lord, in all of this, we ask that we would leave here glorifying your name and glorifying you for who you are, and that we would see you and understand you more clearly than we ever have. In the name of Jesus, your Son, we pray. Amen. Well, in this passage, we have four rather disconnected teachings 
of Jesus. They seem disconnected. The section on judging, the section on casting your pearls before swine, prayer, and then the golden rule. Now, while they seem disconnected, all these four teachings of Jesus fall under the larger theme of living life as God sees it, or seeing life as God sees it, rather than as the Pharisees see it. Life as God sees it, rather than as the Pharisees The Sermon on the Mount is all about this. This is Jesus' most famous sermon, his most famous teachings. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about correcting the people's understanding um, from the grip of what the Pharisees had taught them to the truth about God. Correcting the people's view from what the Pharisees had taught them and pointing them in the right direction. Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, points the people to think and to move in the right direction. The main themes of the, king, of, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the main theme, the kingdom of God, entrance into the kingdom of God, is very important. Let's get this clear that the Son of God, when he came and taught us, the theme of his teaching, the emphasis of his teaching, was entrance into the kingdom of God. That's as relevant today as it ever is. So now it's time for self-reflection. Have I entered into the kingdom of God? Jesus says, that's a priority. That needs to be the first priority in your life. Entering the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us what is required in order to enter the kingdom of God. Do you remember? So he says, first priority in your life, enter the kingdom. If you ask, well, how does one enter this kingdom, Jesus? How does one enter the kingdom of God? He says, what is required is righteousness. Righteousness is required. He challenges the Pharisees' understanding of righteousness. He says, they're right when they tell you, the Pharisees are right when they tell you that to get into the kingdom of God, you need to be righteous, but you need to have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones that everyone thought were righteous. So, in your own mind, it's difficult as Christians now because we were thinking so differently about righteousness, but maybe before you were a Christian, who is someone that you can think of that you thought was a good person, that you thought was righteous? You know, you thought, well, that person is, is really good. If anyone's getting to, going to get into heaven based upon their own goodness, that's the guy. And Jesus' words would ring true here. You need to have a righteousness that's greater than that person. That person's goodness isn't good enough. God requires perfection. Righteousness to God is perfection. Be perfect, Jesus said, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. If you look with lust, can't get in. Have any anger in your heart? Call somebody an idiot? Can't get in. He says, going the extra mile. You don't want to? Somebody forces you? Give them two. Someone hits you on the one side? Give them the other. Be like God. Because God is righteous. Why don't we think of God as our example of righteousness? Right? Anyone think of Jesus when I ask that question? <laughs> That's the one who is righteous. That's the kind of righteousness a person needs to have in order to get into the kingdom of God. Now, this would cause despair if that was all that could be said, right? 
Do you think that would cause despair? If, if I came here on Sunday, you came and we talked about how you need to be righteous to get into the kingdom of God. But that was basically all we had to say. We, point, we pulled uh, out perfection as the standard of righteousness. That would cause despair. But Jesus then teaches also in the Sermon on the Mount about the character of God. Another major theme of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling you, God is good. Now, this is obscured by the Pharisees' legalism. Did you know that legalism obscures a view of the goodness of God? Legalism is not putting the standard where it should be, by the way. Legalism is not saying that, perfect, that righteousness is perfection. Legalism is saying that in order to be saved, you need to obey the law. There is no other way to be righteous through faith in Jesus. The only way to be righteous is through obedience. But because no one is perfect, Legalism lowers the standards. But what legalism does is it doesn't show us the goodness of God. It basically says God only is going to give people what they deserve. That's the kind of God God is. He's going to give you what you deserve. And the Pharisee said he's going to give us heaven because that's what we deserve. So the goodness of God is obscured. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, teaches us about the goodness of God. Do you know that nowhere... In the Sermon on the Mount, however, Jesus mentions the cross. Nowhere does Jesus mention his death for us and for our sins. I know there's many people that like to say, the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Christianity is all about. You ever heard that before? You know, let's just get, forget Paul, forget the New Testament, forget all this stuff about doctrine and the atonement. Let's just talk about what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. That's the essence of Christianity. But my friends, that's not the essence of Christianity. If all we had was the Sermon on the Mount, we would not have sufficient understanding of Christianity. Let's make that very clear. The Sermon on the Mount is not sufficient as many think. It leaves you hanging. It points you in the right direction. It tells you you need to get into the kingdom and you need to be righteous and you need to have a righteousness that's perfect. And it attacks and corrects their view of the the Pharisees. But it leaves you hanging. It says God is good. Explain how the goodness of God connects with our need. It just leaves you hanging. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great preachers of the last century, he he said, there's nothing that so utterly condemns us as the Sermon on the Mount. There's nothing so utterly impossible, so terrifying, and so full of doctrine. Indeed, I do not hesitate to say that were it not that I knew of the doctrine of justification by faith, I would never look at the Sermon on the Mount, because it is a sermon before which we all stand completely naked and altogether without hope. Far from being something practical that we can take up and put into practice, it is of all teaching the most impossible if we are left to ourselves. This great sermon is full of doctrine, and it leads us to doctrine. It is a kind of prologue to all the doctrine of the New Testament. I really like that. It sets you up for the rest of the story, doesn't it? That's what the Sermon on the Mount does. Not that it's not practical. Not that as Christians we can't go to the Sermon on the Mount and and learn about how we ought to apply these things in our lives. But if it's about obtaining righteousness before God and entrance into the kingdom based upon the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, we are toast. Lloyd-Jones said it right. If I didn't know about justification through faith, I wouldn't want to read the Sermon on the Mount. 
And brothers and sisters, that highlights such an important point, that legalism drives people away from God. If all you think is that God rewards you based upon your own obedience, and when you reflect upon your obedience, that will drive you away from God. You don't know that God is a God of grace. You don't know about the cross. You don't know about justification through faith. And so you think God is simply a lawgiver and one who rewards based upon obedience. And when you see your own disobedience, when you look at something like the Sermon on the Mount, you think, well, God won't have me. I tried. I tried very hard and I failed. I put my end into it and I I fell short and God, there's nothing he can do for me. I might as well just give up and walk away. It's better that God doesn't exist. I ought to just turn to atheism because if I believe in God, I have no hope. Legalism produces atheists. Legalism drives people away from God. But grace draws us to himself. Brothers and sisters, it's the grace of God, it's the love of God for sinners revealed at the cross alone that brings us near to God. And when we stand in grace, and when we understand God's grace, then, and really only then, can we look at the Sermon on the Mount square in the face and we can, we can reflect upon our own lives and we can say, yep, I do judge. Yes, I do look with lust. Yes, I do have anger in my heart. But that doesn't drive me away from God. That makes me wonder at the love of God for me and that motivates me to want to look at this and not to run away from it. So grace doesn't just save us and draw us near to God, but it also allows us to honestly take a look at what true morality is. And it frees us to seek that in our lives as well. How do you read the Sermon on the Mount? Do you read the Sermon on the Mount as a bunch of commands that you need to obey in order to be saved? Or do you read it as a, a revelation of what true morality is that condemns you, that drives you to God's grace, and then as a Christian you can look at it in freedom and seek to follow it. How do you read the Sermon on the Mount? So let's go on. Let's look at this passage. We continue looking at how we are to live our lives according to Christ and in contrast to the Pharisees. So we looked at four things. We read four things. Number one, we are not to judge. Life according to Christ and not according to the Pharisees. Number one, we are not to judge. Verse one to five. Judge not that you be not judged. Now this verse is one of the most popular verses in the world. You hear it all the time from people who are not even Christians and don't even believe in Jesus or God. But they love this verse. It's the most well-known and abused verse, probably in the Bible. Sometimes people say, Thou shalt not judge, as if it was one of the Ten Commandments. But it's not. Judge not that you be not judged, is what Jesus said. J.C. Ryle, a pastor from... uh, the 1800s, he said, it is possible to press the words of the Bible so far that they yield not medicine, but poison. And this is a good example. 
Someone could say, judge not, and they can misunderstand what Jesus is actually saying here. And it actually becomes a poisonous verse, not a medicinal verse. Poisonous because then people think, you're not to make any judgments whatsoever. Jesus excludes all judgment making. And that's not what it means. Judge not doesn't mean don't make a moral evaluation. Don't judge a behavior to be right or wrong. You understand what I'm saying? That would be like you're walking down the street and you see someone beating and robbing an old lady and you say, I'm not to judge. I'm not to judge. (laughs) That is not what Jesus is saying here. See, Jesus doesn't say it's wrong to bo- it's wrong to see the speck in another person's eye, does he? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you shouldn't be seeing specks in other people's eye. You see, part of being human is that we make judgments, moral judgments. That's one very important thing about our humanness about us being made in the image of God is that we, unlike the animals, can make moral judgments and we can distinguish between right and wrong. And Jesus is not saying we shouldn't distinguish between right and wrong. If he was saying that, that would be a very inhuman thing to say. But Christianity doesn't make us inhuman, but human. Embracing what we are. Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't make an evaluation or a judgment whether someone is a Christian or not. Sometimes this verse is used to justify that. Well, you can't know whether someone's a Christian or not. You can't make that judgment. Don't judge. That's not true because if we go on in this very chapter, Jesus says, beware of false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly they're ravenous wolves and you'll, you'll judge them or know them by their fruit. Right? So, Even in the same chapter, he says, we should be discerning to know whether someone is true or whether someone is false. So this doesn't mean you don't make a judgment about whether someone is a Christian or not. That's something in the scripture we're we're supposed to do. We're supposed to um, be discerning in that. All over the Bible, we see that. Of good judgment being made. So all judgment can't be prohibited. So what does he mean? And I think we all know what he means because we all feel it when someone does it to us. And that is, judge not means to condemn or to punish or to think you're better than someone else. The judge, the jury, and the executioner all rolled up into one. Judge not that you be not judged. That's like you make a moral judgment. Okay, John just did something sinful. I just made that moral judgment. But I judge him in this sense if I say, huh, what a bad guy. I'm way better than he is. I should punish him with the silent treatment. I should gossip about him. Something should... It's when I exalt myself above him because of what I see in him. We know the difference. And you know what? A judge... In the, court, in the court system. doesn't have to be judgmental. Judges don't have to be judgmental. They can do their job and not think they're better than other people. But it's, when the, it's illustrated in Scripture 
when the Pharisee and the, and the publican go to the temple and the Pharisee looks down at the publican, looks down at the tax collector and says, God, thank you that I'm better than this man and that I'm not like other men. Now he's judging other people. He's saying, I see the sins in them, but he's not seeing the sins in himself. I see the sins in them, and I'm glad I'm not a sinner like them. I'm better than they are. God, thank you. That man was judging. And you feel that. You know when you're in the presence of someone who's judgmental. In the Old Testament, God indicts the people for thinking they're holier than thou. That expression actually comes from the Old Testament. Holier than thou. Stand over there. Get away from me because I'm holier than you are. Or if you remember the woman caught in adultery, a perfect example of this point that Jesus makes. They catch a woman and they bring her to Jesus. Jesus makes a moral evaluation. The people have made a moral evaluation. Adultery is wrong. Jesus, in that story, doesn't say adultery isn't wrong. Right? He doesn't say, oh, you can't judge whether adultery is wrong or not. He says, absolutely, adultery is wrong. And absolutely, she should be stoned. Okay, so, whoever has no sin, cast the first stone. You're right. She should be stoned. You're right, it's wrong. But your attitude is wrong because you're not seeing your own sins and you think you're better than her. You're the judge, the jury, and the executioner. Don't judge, lest you too be judged. If we stone her, we'll have to have a whole bunch of stonings here today. How many rocks do we have? Her adultery was clearly wrong, but Jesus didn't condemn her, even though the other people did condemn her, because they were judging. So the problem, look at verse 3. This is the problem. Why do you behold the speck in your brother's eye? And here's the thing. But you consider not the beam that is in your own eye. That's the problem with judging. Is you see the sins of others and you do not consider the sins that you have yourself. The word considered in the Greek means observe fully. You do not observe the whole picture. You're right in seeing that sin. But you're wrong because you're not looking at the entire picture. You're, you're, you're not considering everything that can be considered, which is the beam in your own eye. See, the issue is not that the man who's judging is simply failing to see the beam in his own eye, but he's choosing not to see the beam in his own eye. He doesn't want to see the beam in his own eye. What he wants to see is the speck in the other person's eye. You see... If you really cared about the speck in the other person's eye, if you really cared about specks in people's eyes, don't you think you would notice and care for the beam in your own eye? Right? If that was such a concern for you, we can't have specks in people's eyes, then why don't you consider the beam that's in your own eyes? And this illustrates th this very important point, is that the reason why we judge other people is not because we care about right and wrong, but we want to be better than that other person. You see? If we really, really cared about right and wrong, we would care about right and wrong in our own life. You see? <laughs> so the fact that I don't consider the beam in my own eye, and I say, oh, you have a speck in your eye, shows I don't care about the speck in his eye at all. I just, I like the fact there's a speck in his eye, and I like the fact that I'm pointing it out. 
I like the fact that I'm better. I feel better. And Jesus says, you hypocrite. You don't care about the speck in that guy's eye. Follow Jesus' saying. Why do we judge? Why are we pharisaical? It's not because we care about right and wrong. It's because we care about uno, number one, and not about the other person. If we really saw the whole picture, we would see that we aren't better than anyone else. We would see that we all have specks and beams in our eyes. And therefore, we wouldn't judge one another. That doesn't mean we wouldn't make the evaluation, but we wouldn't be the executioner. We wouldn't be condemning. We wouldn't be the punisher. We wouldn't think we were better than anyone else. And what we would do then is we would seek to help one another in love. I don't think Jesus here says that we shouldn't help one another. But how do you help? Is it in love? How are we doing with this, brothers and sisters? little reflection here at the beginning of the year. We are not to judge. If we're judging, we're not seeing life as the Son of God sees it, but as the Pharisees see it. If we are judging, we need to look at the whole picture. And then when we look at the whole picture, that includes looking at the love and the grace that God has for us as sinners. Let's go into this new year not judging one another, but helping one another to see the love that God has for each one of us. Number two, verse six. I call this one, or I describe this one as, we are not to profane the holy. We are not to profane the holy. This is a kind of a difficult saying, and it's been interpreted this way by almost all interpreters. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've thought of this before. Verse 6 is interpreted to mean when you witness to people as an evangelist, when you share the gospel to people, you should use discretion as to whom you witness to. If someone is not willing to appreciate the gospel, then you shouldn't share the gospel with them. That's the way verse 6 is taken. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Your pearls are the gospel. And that person's swine. Don't cast your pearls before swine. (laughs) I think that if that were true, probably none of us would have ever had the gospel shared to us. Amen? (laughs) That doesn't sit well with me, that interpretation. Don't throw what is holy to the dogs. Don't cast your pearls before swine. I don't think that's talking about when you witness to people, you should use discretion. I think you should use discretion when you witness to people, but I don't think this is what this verse is saying. It's strange that it would follow, that something like that would be said after verse 1 to 5. Don't judge, first of all. Uh, Second of all, we see in the Bible God always casting his pearls before swine in that sense. God is always sending prophets to hard-headed people who don't appreciate them, right? And God tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And We've seen in the Bible and we've seen throughout church history that men do lose their lives for sharing the gospel. And that's not always a bad thing. It often is the the source of great revival and people turning to the Lord. Thirdly, how do you know who will reject it or not? Because in that case, you would almost have to be sharing a little bit and then get a bad reaction from them and then say, okay, we're done. 
But here it says, don't throw some pearls to the pigs, and if they trample it, don't throw any more. It says, don't throw the pearls to the pigs at all. It's not fitting to do that at all. So it's not about judging the other person's response to the gospel. How do you know who's going to reject it? And often, it's the person we least think likely who will reject the gospel, who's the ones that actually do, right? The one that we least expect is the one that often comes to Christ. Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28? Paul says, you see your calling, brothers, not many wise or noble, not many mighty, but God has chosen the base things of this world to confound the world. The base things, the things that the world despises, God has chosen them to be rich in faith. God has chosen them to believe. So I don't, it doesn't sit well with me in this interpretation. So what does this verse mean then? Well, here's my stab at it, and I won't be dogmatic about it. You can disagree with me if you'd like. But I think that this is a general principle. It's a general principle that whatever is holy, treat as holy and don't profane it. If you do, then that which you defiled or profaned the holy for will eventually come back and hurt you. Whatever reason you profane the holy will eventually come back and hurt you. But I think it's a general principle of whatever is holy, treat as holy and don't profane it. The focus isn't on the pigs and the dogs, it's on the pearls and the holy. Don't take what is holy and treat it as if it's just scraps for dogs. Don't take pearls and throw it to pigs as if it's pig food. One contention in the Old Testament that God had with the, with the leadership of Israel is that the priests profaned the holy. It's a theme in Ezekiel, 20, in Ezekiel 22 that the priests, they took the holy and they made it unholy. They profaned it. And because they did that, God was profaned. And I think the Pharisees did that very thing as well. They profaned the law, a holy thing, by lowering the standards and saying they were good. They profaned the temple, which was a picture of the atonement, and they made it a marketplace and a place where they could show off and brag. They profaned God's word, which prophesies of Messiah and speaks about sin and righteousness and judgment. And they made it ultimately just a religious network that they could master and rule people with. As Christians, we're not to take holy things, whatever that may be. I'm not going to limit it just to scripture and law, but those included. Let's not be like Pharisees and take holy things and treat them as unholy. Lest God not be honored. God is honored by the things that he's given to us. His son, his law, the bread and the wine, which we're going to take later today. Let's keep those holy, treat them as such, and God will be honored in that. You can disagree with me on that interpretation if you'd like. Thirdly, verse 7 to 11. So first, we are not to judge. If we want to live lives according to the Son of God and not according to the Pharisees, we are not to judge. Number two, we are not to profane the holy. And number three, we are to believe in the goodness of God. Something the Pharisees didn't do, even though they would have probably told you God is good. Many people say God is love and good, but they don't understand that. As Christians, we are to believe in the goodness of God. It's interesting how 
much, Jesus turns to the subject of prayer and how he connects the subject of prayer with the goodness of God. Have you noticed that? All throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks so much about prayer, but it's always about trusting in the goodness of God. Because how we pray, how much we pray and how we pray, is really a reflection of our view of God. Our prayer lives are, reveal the status of how much we really trust God or remember that he's good. And the goodness of God is a theme with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So remember in chapter 5 he says that God sends the rain upon the just and the unjust and you're to be like him, forgiving. You're to greet those who, don't, who aren't necessarily your family or friends because God is like that. God is good. That's what Jesus continually says. In chapter 6, he talks about prayer. Don't be like the heathen who have to use vain repetitions and cut themselves and fatigue deos, trying to make God tired so he'll give them something. God's not like that. He's your Father in heaven. Just trust him and present your simple prayers to him in simple believing faith in his goodness. In the end of chapter 6, he says, don't worry. All that worrying is reflection that you're not really trusting in the goodness of God. He was little faith. Don't you realize that God takes care of all the birds and he takes care of all the plants? Don't you think he's going to take care of you? I mean, what kind of God do you think he is? So this is a theme with Jesus. Verse 7 and 8, he could not give us a more full promise in prayer, couldn't he? Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. For everyone, that's a pretty comprehensive statement. Everyone that asks receives. He that seeks find, and to him that knocks, it shall be opened. He couldn't give us a fuller promise and encouragement for us to pray. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus expounds more on the idea of knocking. And actually, in rabbinical Judaism, knocking on, the, on a door was in their minds as well, an analogy of prayer. And in Jesus, Jesus in Luke talks about uh, the man who knocks on his friend's door. Do you remember that? He says, friend, I have some unexpected visitors and I've got nothing to set before them. Can you give me some food? And the friend says, no, no, no. I'm in bed. I got in with my family. We've turned out all the lights. Get lost. But that persistent knocking by that persistent knocking, the friend gets up and gives him what he asks for. And Jesus' point is, come on, if, if through persistence, someone who's unwilling will get up and give you what you're asking for, he's unwilling, but through persistence he'll give, how much more will a willing God give you what you ask for when you persist? So persistence as Christians in prayer, is no longer about trying to twist God's arm. It's about believing in his goodness and willingness. I'm persisting because I believe he's willing, not because I believe he's unwilling. And isn't it true that we often don't pray or persist because we feel he's not willing? Well, I prayed, it didn't happen, he's probably doesn't, he's not willing. And I wonder if through persistence, our faith is revealed. So prayer is all about knowing God is good and knowing he's for you, knowing he's willing to give you the things that you ask for. So if you ask then, well, how come he doesn't always give me the things I ask for? How many of you know someone who's been pretty persistent in prayer, but it hasn't always paid off? 
seemingly paid off, right? Well, notice just uh, one very special word in verse 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, now you're evil and God's not evil, so if you who are evil know how to do this, how much more will your Father in heaven give what? Good things to those who ask. He'll give good things to those who ask. It's elsewhere said in the Bible that you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. So, God gives good things. If a, if a child went up to a father and said, Daddy, I want you to buy me a car. I want you to make it this color. And I want you to do it for me now. And he persists and he persists and he persists and he persists. That doesn't necessarily mean that the father will give him or should give him that thing. Because it's not good for him to have that. And of course, we don't always know what is good for us, but God knows what's good for us. Paul prayed, take this thorn away. He prayed three times. He persisted. And God says, you don't know what's good for you. It's good for you to have this thorn. I give good things to my children. I know better than you. So when we pray, we are to believe in the willingness that God has to give and in his goodness to give good things. And we ought to seek to pray for good things and seek his will on what we should pray for. How are you doing with that? Another reflection question. How are you doing with, with prayer and trusting in God's willingness and goodness towards you and not doubting his goodness or willingness when he doesn't give you what you ask for? Have you considered that perhaps what you ask for isn't a good thing, even if it seems good to you? Don't doubt God, Jesus says. Take it from Jesus. Don't take it from your own understanding. And lastly, verse 12, we are to be active, active doers of good. Verse 12, we are to be active doers of good. Jesus here sums up the law and the prophets. What an amazing statement. This is all the law and the prophets summed up. Everything he's been discussing in the Sermon on the Mount. Did you know that this is a paraphrase of Leviticus 19.18, which is love your neighbor as yourself. It's just a paraphrase of that. It's not something new or different. It's a new way of saying that. It's interesting that other religious leaders have said something similar. Other religious leaders. But the interesting difference is that when they say something like this, it's always in the negative. Like this. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. And that's a truth principle. It's not wrong. In Jesus' own day, or just before Jesus, in the first century, there was a man... Uh, Rabbi Hillel, and asked, can you summarize the entire law standing on one foot? Stand on one foot and summarize the entire law. And he did. He stood on one foot, and he says, whatever is hateful to you, don't do that to others. This is the whole law. Now go, everything else is commentary. Now go and do it. Whatever is hateful to you, what you don't like, don't do to others. 
And that is typical of what other religious teachers say. Like Confucius even said the same thing. Hillel said the same thing. Many of them say the same thing. The difference with Jesus is he says it positively. Do unto others what you would want them to do unto you. That is active doing of good. How many people comfort themselves because they say, I haven't done this and I haven't done that, right? I'm a good person because I don't murder. I don't do this. I don't do this. Have you done to others what you would want done to you? What an amazing probing statement which applies in all areas of life. This is called the golden rule, and it's golden indeed. An early Roman emperor before Constantine was so impressed by this statement of Jesus that he had it engraven on his wall in gold. The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a rule for every circumstance. You get up in the morning. This rule applies. It's telling you to be proactive and not just sit back and don't do to others, but proactive. Would I like my, someone to make me breakfast today? Oh, there's, uh, there's some uh, pet droppings on the floor. I want someone else to pick it up. I don't want to pick it up. I want someone else to. Well, they're thinking the same thing. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You see how this affects every area of life and it's proactive. It's an amazing view of the law. The law is all about active goodness, brothers and sisters. It's not about just staying in a little cave and not hurting anybody. The law of God is about actively doing good to people, helping the poor, helping the needy, helping the widows, helping those who are in need, blessing people, not just not hurting people. That's what true goodness is all about. And that's why in James it says, if you know the good that you should do and you don't do it, it's sin. If you honestly look at your life and compare it to the golden rule, do actively unto others good. How do you, how do you fare comparing your life to that? How do you fare? And if we're honest, we all, in the light of this law, stand condemned. Who can say that they've done unto everyone as, as they would like done to them? Who can say that? And that's why the Sermon on the Mount is not sufficient for us. It shows us our need, and it points us in the right direction of trusting in God and His goodness. Because God is good, remember, and He cares about us. The Sermon on the Mount shows us our need and points us to trust in God without lowering the standards of the law one iota. And brothers and sisters, as we know, but as many don't know, and sometimes we hear it so much that we think everyone knows it, but most people in the world don't know that Jesus came into the world, not just to preach the Sermon on the Mount, but he came into the world because of the goodness of God and the love of God for sinners who don't keep the golden rule. Though we are all inexcusably guilty, God loves each one of us and does not want us to perish. And that's why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to save us. He came into the world to die upon the cross for our sins, which is the only way any of us can be righteous and can enter the kingdom of God and not perish. The only way 
is by a substitutionary death. And that's why God's love for us was inevitably leading right to the cross. Christ died for our sins. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that you are a sinner, that you didn't keep the golden rule? That's good. But do you also believe that even though you're a sinner, God loves you and that God sent his son to die on the cross for your sins? We're not talking about someone else, but you. You. The sins that you committed already this Sunday, January 2012, Christ died. And what the cross, and this is really important, the cross reveals that God is both willing and able save you. He's both willing and able to save you. And when we sin, and I'm speaking this from personal experience, when I sin, I'm tempted to doubt one of those two things. Oh, because I sinned, God's able to save me, but he's not willing because I sinned. He doesn't like me anymore because of what I just did. He's able to save me, but he doesn't want to have me anymore. Or I think the other way. Oh, I sinned. He wants to have me, but because of my sin, he's not able anymore. (laughs) Both of those lies are answered by the cross. God is willing to save you, and the proof of that is that he sent his son to die for you. He's willing to have you, and he's able to save you, and the proof of that is that Christ died for you, and that the son of God's death on the cross for your sins, when he became sin on the cross, in your place, when God did not give your sins to yourself, but to him, and he died on the cross and bore the penalty and bore your sins in his body on the tree, that alone made God able to save. It's not that, well, it's great that he died, but now something else needs to be done by me. That alone makes him able to save, as Romans chapter 3, verse 26 says, so that God might be just and the justifier of those who believe. The death of Christ is all that you need and it is all that God needs. God invites you to take freely of the waters of life. Just simply trust in his goodness and not in yours. The Sermon on the Mount condemns us but points us in the right direction. You can trust in God without lowering the standards. How are you today? Are you in his grace this year, 2012? Have you believed that you're a sinner and have you trusted in the amazing love for God revealed in Christ crucified for your sins? And as a Christian, if that's true for you, if it's not, you need to believe that or else you will perish, the Bible says. If you don't believe what I'm telling you, you'll perish and go to hell. But if you believe what I'm saying, then you can look at the Sermon on the Mount in a new light and you cannot need to run away from God because you realize he's not a legalist. You can look at the Sermon on the Mount. You can see the grace of God for you in your failures and you can reflect upon how you need to change and live life according to the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son in the fullness of time. We thank you for everything that he taught us, but especially we thank you for what he did on the cross for us. Not going against your will or trying to change you, but because of your will, he died. 
And Lord, we will remember that this morning as we take communion, that his blood was shed and his body was broken because you love sinners and you are willing to have them and you want to have them. Lord, help us to see very clearly what the issues are. Help us not to trust in our own goodness, but to trust in yours. And Lord, help us also to, as Christians, be diligent in not judging one another and not profaning the holy and to be diligent in prayer and in actively doing good. And thank you that we're free to pursue these things because of your grace. We glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.